to the National Treasure Hunt podcast, where the secret lies not only with Charlotte, but also with your co-hosts. I'm Aubrey. And I'm Emily. And today's episode is one of those episodes that is really in Emily's wheelhouse. Yes. It is all about the Knights of Templar and the Freemasons, guys. Yeah, so spoiler alert, bottom line up front. That's what we're talking about today. I'm so excited. <laughs> we're doing one of our infamous deep dive episodes into uh, something in National Treasure that is a major plot point and also happens to be real. And so we are going to give you a closer look at what these societies were or are. And that is the entire bread and butter of today's episode. So we have, Emily, I know a lot to talk about. So before we get started, got to do our customary social media shout out, which is also your bread and butter. So take it away. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, all those social media platforms, really just those two, at <laughs> NT Hunt Podcast. You can find us, our episodes on Spotify, SoundCloud, iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts. You can download them, subscribe, rate, and review. Guys, hit us up on the social media. Tell us what you like and don't like. Feel free to tell us, uh, you know, especially if you like us in the iTunes reviews. We love seeing those uh, coming in from you guys. It's super encouraging for us. And you know, just keep talking to us. We've been uh, we've been loving being able to engage with you via social media over these past few weeks. It's been absolutely wonderful to see all the cool stuff that you guys have and all the cool takes on the different episodes. So this is especially a place for like any of you history buffs. I mean, if you guys know some stuff, if we miss some stuff, if we say something that's wrong or particularly interesting, like hit us up. We want to know. Yeah, I, I will caveat that by saying we're trying really hard to make sure we're not saying things that are wrong. This but, is true. <laughs> but yeah, definitely keep in touch. People have been sharing with us really cool uh, photos and videos, especially from their own trips to Washington, D.C., because we've been having a lot of fun sharing our photos from our national treasure hunt in D.C. So keep sending that our way and we will love to keep engaging with you. And this is also the time in the show where I would normally remind you that our new episodes come out every other Wednesday. But Emily, this is our second to last episode of season one. How has the time gone so quickly? I don't know. It's certainly gone quickly for us. I hope it's gone as quickly for everyone listening. (laughs) Quite frankly, but don't worry, guys. We do have today's episode. We have another one for you, episode 10, uh, two Wednesdays from now, I guess you could say. And uh, then we do have season two already planned for you, so you're not getting rid of us that easily. So, no, so we're gonna be back in, in your ears very soon, soon enough. Stay tuned. Okay, so with all of those customary introductions out of the way, let's quickly run down how this episode is going to fly. So, as we said, this is our deep dive on the Knights Templar and the Freemasons. And so what we've decided to do here is sort of break the episode down into two parts. We're going to go in movie chronological order. So we'll talk about these societies in the order in which National Treasure talks about them. So that will be the Knights Templar first, followed by the Freemasons. And what we hope to give you a picture of in the conversation today is answering the questions of what are these societies? 
give you a little bit of context or background about how they have operated and compare and contrast their real life entities, if you will, with how they are referred to in National Treasure. So some more fact versus fiction, which honestly, Emily, I think has become our calling card on this podcast, comparing the film points to reality and oftentimes uh, being really happy with what we, we find out. For sure. So, Aubrey, what are we going to be talking about first? Well, Emily, you are going to be introducing us to the Knights Templar. So, where are we starting off? Well, I thought, you know, a good place to start was at the beginning. It's a very good place to start. If you get that reference, kudos to you. Um, Aubrey does not, which is okay. Um, Wait, you're not going to tell me what it was? It's from The Sound of Music. Oh, okay, cool. Go on. So I thought the best place to start was with, you know, what are the Knights Templar? So they go by many names. They're known as the Poor Fellow Soldiers of Christ and the Temple of Solomon. It's a bit of a long-winded one. That's all one name? That's all one name. Okay. The Order of Solomon's Temple. So Harry Potter. Instead of, like, the Order of the Phoenix? Yeah, basically. Okay, sure. Uh, The Knights Templar. Or Classic. they just go by Templars. Short and sweet. So, got a lot of different names. Basically, what they are, are a religious military order, Catholic specifically, of knighthood that was established in 1119 during the Crusades. Okay, now these guys, they're a monastic order. And it's they were located in many countries, including France, Jerusalem, England. We got Aragon, which we now know as Spain, Portugal, Italy, Hungary, Croatia. They're all over the place. They were all over the place. In fact, they were estimated to be between 15,000 and 20,000 Knights Templar at the peak. And about only one-tenth of them were actual knights. So, interesting fact, they didn't do knighting ceremonies. So, you know that thing that we saw in the beginning of the film where... um, Ben's grandfather kind of knights him. Yeah, when he, he basically little Ben asks his grandfather if their family is a family of knights, and mm-hmm. this really tickles the grandfather. And he's like, oh, you want to be? And then, like, try, like, pretend knights him in the attic. Yeah, exactly. So not only, obviously, that was a pretend knighting ceremony, so, like, obviously he wouldn't have been a knight, but... The Knights Templar didn't do knighting ceremonies. So in order to be considered one of the knights in the Templars, you had to already be a knight. But then how come only one-tenth of them were really knights? Because only one-tenth of them came in and were previously knights. Oh, so they all called themselves knights even though only some of them were. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, because like some of them were knights, so I guess they just kind of all adopted the name. It was, See, it's a weird com- Honestly, I give mad props to the actual knights in the organization for sharing their title. Yeah, I mean, that's not what I would have done, but good for them. Speaking of titles, <laughs> okay. Speaking of titles, let's break down the structure here a little bit, right? We're kind of in the big, we're in the clouds, we've got a big picture happening. Well, what's the nitty gritty here? So what's the structure? Well, they have a grandmaster, which as with any kind of secret-ish society, I feel like there's always a grandmaster. That's just the thing. This dude, I'm assuming it was a dude. Because patriarchy. Because the patriarchy. 
was appointed for life. Okay, but most of the lives of these Knights Templar were pretty short because, you know, battles and stuff. Did So they were, like, legit doing battles? Yes. Okay, got it. Under the Grand Master, they had Masters of the Order of the Templars. This is, this is, these names, man. They yeah. need to do better. They do. Basically, these were just the people that, like, for each region that there was an order in, they were kind of, like, in charge of that. So, like, in Spain, if there was one, there was, like, a master of the Order of Templars of Spain. Oh, okay, so it's, like, the governor and the grandmaster is, like, the president. Yeah. And then there were three main classes of knight of Templars. So we had the noble knights, we had the non-noble sergeants, and we had the chaplains. Okay, so the noble knights were the most visible ones. These are the ones that we see portrayed in National Treasure in the flashback scenes in the beginning when you see the knights with the white shirts and the red crosses on them. The white shirts symbolized their purity and chastity, and the red cross was the symbol of martyrdom as they were willing to die for their cause. And so, of course, you're talking about, and the reason I, I guess we're even talking about the Knights Templar today is because it's the origin story that Ben's grandfather tells him in the attic, right? So you're talking yes. now about the scene where they're all, like, putting their swords up in the air and doing, mm -hmm. like, a sword high-five? Precisely. Sword high-five was done by the Noble Knights. They honestly were way ahead of the game. That would be way better than a high-five in COVID times. Yeah, I mean, we just need to get some swords up in here and maybe we have it worked out. <laughs> okay, go on. Uh, so then, you know, we had some, then there were other boring stuff happening. So we had the non-noble sergeants. They're just like, I don't know, they did trades and stuff. They were like blacksmiths and whatnot. And then we had chaplains. They were for the spiritual need of the Templars because, you know, this was a religious organization and stuff like that. Importantly, though, they all wore the Red Cross. Okay. okay. So now that we have the basic layout here, what even was their purpose? Right? Okay. That's what I was going to ask you. It seems like this is just like a club. But instead of playing softball or dodgeball on the weekends, they were doing battles and stuff. They were. So, you know, these guys, you know, they were founded to protect Christian pilgrims that went to the Holy Land. Okay, so the Holy Land was Jerusalem. And Jerusalem, during the First Crusade, was taken from Muslim conquerors. So a lot of times what happened is they ran into this issue where then when Christians would make the trek to go to this holy land, they were often like kind of offed on their way. <laughs> yeah, I, Aubrey is laughing at that. I don't know why people dying is funny to her, but, you know. <laughs> it's the way you're saying it, duh. They're just uh -huh. like offed on the way. They were. So like, you know, this, so this French knight dude named Hughes de Payens, I'm sure I'm butchering that pronunciation, he went to the king of Jerusalem in 1119, and he was like, yo, can we get some kind of monastic order to protect these pilgrims that are traveling here? And the king was like, yeah, go ahead, make your headquarters in a wing of this royal palace we have on the Temple Mount. Fun fact, and where the origin name came from, this temple was believed to be on the ruins of the Temple of Solomon. And this gave the whole organization some element of mystery to it, which is where we start to bring in kind of these kind of legendary, uh, mysterious aspects of things that we see portrayed in popular culture today. 
And if anyone has listened to our show before, you would have heard us refer to Temple Mount, Temple of Solomon before in some of our past historical deep dive episodes, right, Em? Yeah, but we'll get to that later. Hold up, hold up. So we know what they were supposed to do. What did they actually do, right? (laughs) Believe it or not, there's a difference. So it should be noted that up to 90% of the members were non-combatant members. Okay, okay, so they so, were the ones fighting the battle. So, so yeah, forget battles on the weekend. They had to be doing something else. Exactly. So, what do they actually do? They did a lot of dealings with money. Now, originally, the Knights Templar were super poor at first, which it kind of is the origin of that name that I mentioned at the beginning, the poor fellow soldiers of Christ and the Temple of Solomon. That's where the poor idea came from. So... They were pretty poor, and their first emblem for the society had two knights riding on one horse, which supposedly was supposed to emphasize the poverty of the order, because I guess they couldn't afford two horses. So they're really advertising this fact. Yeah, they like they were yeah letting it be known. But then this big wig on the French church scene named Bernard Clairvaux, which I'm sure I pronounced Clairvaux. <laughs> Clairvaux, Bernard Clairvaux, stuck up for them. And after the Council of Troyes in 1129, he got them officially endorsed by the church. So what this meant is now they had money flowing in. They got money, they got land, they got businesses, they got all of this stuff. Exactly. Aubrey's doing the paper flying motion, just giving all that money. So real quick intercession here. There's a fun fact and it's You can decide whether or not you think it's fun. But in 1139, Pope Innocent II actually passed a decree that basically exempt the Knights Templar from needing to, like, obey local laws. (laughs) What? Which seems kind of like a power grab mood by the old Catholic Church. But, you know, basically they could pass through borders freely. They didn't pay taxes. And they basically only answered to the Pope. So along with being backed by the Church, they, you know, really got a lot of power and stuff that went along with this and became very popular. Clearly. So while it should be noted that some of the Knights Templar did fight, okay, the other dudes that weren't fighting were like managing all this wealth. They had to deal with all this money. So a lot of them supported the Knights and managed the financial infrastructure of the Knights Templar. So one really cool way that they did this was actually an early form of banking and possibly the first formal check system. I thought this was absolutely fascinating. So basically, just venture with me into the story, if you will. We have Tom the Nobleman. Now, Tom the Nobleman could come and say that he wanted to participate in the Crusades. He wanted to fight. And while he was off doing that, he would put all his assets under Templar management, which they would basically use to generate a letter of credit for good old Tommy boy. Okay, so once Tom made it to the Holy Land, he used that document that they gave him to retrieve funds in the form of treasure of an equal value. What? So this ultimately helped our buddy Tom to be less a less attractive target to thieves, right? Because he's not carrying stuff with him. So we're kind of circling back around to the original 
foundation of what the Knights Templar were founded upon, which was to protect Christians as they made a pilgrimage to the Holy Land. So they were still doing this just in a monetary fashion. So it's a bank. Yeah, they basically had a very early form of banking. There's like, here's my land and my sheep. Okay, you didn't die on your on your quest? Here is a golden chalice. Yeah, basically. Fascinating. Mm-hmm. So we, you know, they they did some big things with all that money. So unfortunately, you know, the rise of the Knights of Templar did not last forever. Clearly, I mean, do they even exist today? They do not exist today. <laughs> so there you go. There clearly was a fall. So <laughs> to speak about the fall, following the loss of the Holy Land, when they, you know, it's it's complicated. There were crusades happening. The Holy Land was going back and forth. The Catholic Church lost the Holy Land. Okay, so like they didn't have that anymore. After that, support started to dwindle, and Pope Clement V, who I guess is one of the popes disbanded the order in 1312 under pressure from a dude named King Philip IV of France. Now, what's important about this, I will have you know, is that many people believed that it was this sudden reduction in power of what was once such a significant group in Europe that actually led to all of the speculation, the development of legends, and the legacy over the years I guess the idea was these people were everything. Now they're like nothing. What happened to all, them, all of their wealth and all of it's like, it's like, uh, like Biggie or Tupac, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I know who those people are. Fine. It's like anyone who was at the top of the game and then fell off the face of the earth. You got to wonder what the heck happened to them. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if there are, like, legends and legacies surrounding uh, Biggie and Tupac, but there definitely are about the Knights Templar. Okay, tell us more. Yeah, so speaking of this, you know, we gotta get back to, of course, the thing that you're all wondering, right? How does this tie back to the movie? You're like, Emily, this is great. You basically just gave us a free history lesson on the Knights of Templar. Awesome stuff, super interesting. Thank you for your storytelling strategies. It was great to hear. But we want to know how this has to do with national treasure, right? Yeah. Well, it's all basically about the treasure, which probably doesn't exist. But Wait! We're gonna... <laughs> what do you mean? I thought we decided, what, in episode two? So, like, many weeks ago that... Okay, national treasure isn't real, but the legend of the treasure is a real legend? Yeah, the, the yes, the legend of the treasure is a real legend. You're <laughs> correct. That doesn't mean that the treasure is real. Okay, okay, okay. So That means that there back. is a legend of the treasure. But the treasure itself, you're saying, is probably not real. So you're crushing my hopes and dreams of being Ben Gates. Okay, so yeah, I, you know, I'm, one could say that I'm crushing your dreams of being Ben Gates, but before we go off too far down that rabbit hole, I would just like to note that in pop culture, as we know, the Templars are associated with many treasures. For example, the Holy Grail, the Ark of the Covenant, and the Freemasons, which aren't a treasure, but, you know, they're another society that we're going to talk about. Maybe they are a treasure 
in and of themselves. And maybe Aubrey will reveal that for us. Who knows? You'll have to keep listening to the episode to find out. But basically, all of this stems from the supposition that while the Knights Templar were occupying the headquarters on the Temple Mount, they must have found something under the temple. People yeah. just couldn't believe that they would be there and like not find anything. There isn't really any physical or document documentary evidence of this, though. Now, I did see something about them possibly having carried a piece of the true cross into some battles. Uh, we're going to... I don't know why that would be a choice that you would make um, necessarily. I don't know what good that was doing for them. If it was just a religious symbol, it seems like a really heavy thing to be carrying as a religious symbol. You know, they make those tiny cross necklaces now that people can wear. So I don't, I don't really know what that was about. Anyway, the believability of them carrying a piece of the true cross into battles seems to, to be called into question. So we're not really sure about that. However, all of that being said, you know, this is me, Aubrey. You know me. Hopefully our listeners know me by now. I'm a sucker for a bit of a conspiracy theory. You you are, and you are also way funnier than I think myself and our listeners would give you credit for until this very moment. I've got to say you're killing the game right now. Thank you. So let us take a journey that maybe Riley Poole would take, and let's trace back the supposed presence of this treasure. Okay? Let's do so it. The idea of there being a treasure was purported by people because once the Knights Templar got to Jerusalem, they really kind of flew under the radar for a few years. And apparently they weren't really doing their job of protecting pilgrims like they said they would. Gasp. So I should note that we know that this kind of lack of knowledge about the Knights Templar during this early period is probably because of the fact that they didn't get support from a bigwig like Bernard Clairvaux until 1129, right? So before that, they, they really were flying under the radar because they weren't well known. So like literally who knows what they were doing then? Exactly. So because, you know, we weren't sure what they were doing, People think it was during that time that they could have been searching for the treasure under the temple in that, like, 10-year period or so. For sure. And and also, if they were really secretive at that time, I mean, secrets lend themselves to conspiracy theories. We're going to see that again in just a few minutes when we start talking about the Freemasons. So I, I buy that completely. Perfect. So people then believe that they probably found a treasure— you know, when they were doing all this digging, because of the fact that they went from being poor to being extremely rich and popular in just a 10-year period. Mm. Now, as I mentioned previously, we know that this is actually because of the backing from Bernard of Clairvaux, mm -hmm. right? But without that knowledge, it all seems possible that they're, you know, flying under the radar, had a lot of time for digging, they're poor, and now all of a sudden they're extremely rich, they must have found a treasure during that time. Actually, you're kind of blowing my mind right now because that makes perfect sense how that sort of rumor and that legend would have started. Right? And then it gets even better. Okay. So supposedly on Friday the 13th, 1307, and yes, that Friday the 13th, King Philip of France went to round up the members of the Knights Templar and torture them. So, unfortunate move on his part. But it's believed that a few of them escaped on ships that were docked off the coast of France. 
Now, these ships actually disappeared that night. So in order to explain the disappearance of the ships, some people said, well, some of the Knights Templar must have escaped and fled on these ships. And, you know, since they were fleeing, maybe they took some of this treasure that they found with them. Now, no one really knows if this is completely true or even where the treasure would have gone after that point. But hey, we're a national treasure podcast, so I think we can all agree that it must have gone below Trinity Church. Yeah, I don't see any other option. I mean, so that pretty much wraps that up. I mean, it's a nice Templar for you. You put a nice little bow on that one. I, I don't see how anyone could argue with you. But, you know, jokes aside, I think all of that that history and that research is is really fascinating because I think what you've found, what you've laid out for us, is really logical rationale for the origins of this legend that, again, become the starting point for our film. And where now we need to transition between the Knights Templar and the Freemasons really comes from the fact that, again, we are really spending all of our episode in like the first five minutes of the film today, right? <laughs> but when Ben's grandfather is telling him the legend of the treasure, part of that story, that origin story of the treasure, was the shipping of the treasure from Europe to the American colonies. And in the film anyway, you might recall that Ben's grandfather tells him that it was the Knights Templar that found and vowed to protect the treasure. Once it was smuggled into Europe, um, the Knights Templar, again, they were still protecting it, but they took on the name of the Freemasons at some point. And then the Freemasons took the treasure across the ocean. Right. Mm -hmm. Where they, you know, were hiding it, leaving clues to its whereabouts. And some people from the Freemason Society that were now in America ended up being some of the founding fathers and the rest is national treasure history. So the real transition here, Emily, I think, is this idea that the Knights Templar became the Freemasons or at least the a portion of the Knights Templar, I guess you could say, yeah, is synonymous or gave rise to the Freemasons. And so the question we need to ask now is whether or not they're related in real life. And it turns out, I don't know if this surprised you, but it, it actually surprised me. It turns out that this is a popular theory yeah. that the Freemasons are the descendants of the Knights Templar. However, it's our understanding that the Freemasons themselves tend to reject this claim. And instead, the this theory was first recorded or floated around in Europe around the year 1737. There are uh, a couple other parallels, for example, um, in Freemasonry, which we'll obviously deep dive into in just a moment, there is an allegory related to the building of King Solomon's Temple, mm-hmm. which you mentioned just a few moments ago with respect to the Knights Templar. So, Exactly. Now, Aubrey, something else that I found that I thought was quite interesting, me not being as much of a uh, connoisseur of the literature surrounding Freemasons as you now are. And now I am is that there seems to be an additional Masonic order called the Knights Templar, which is basically a group of Freemasons who believe in Christianity. 
Now, it's important to note that they derive their name from the medieval Catholic military order, right, that I just spent a while talking about. But they actually don't claim any direct lineage from the OG Templars. That is super interesting. To be honest with you, I didn't find out anything about that when I was doing my research. Um, So that's super, super cool and actually super... um, it makes me have some questions, too, because as we'll get to in just a moment, the Freemasons, they have some interesting relationships with religion and especially with Catholicism, hmm. um, which in a few moments I'm going to use as even more evidence that they are not derived from the original Knights Templar. But we'll get to that in just a moment. But what you just pointed out, I think, is really interesting. So th- thanks for that. Of course. Now, Aubrey, you keep saying in just a moment, in just a moment, we're going to get to the Freemasons. Can that moment be now? Can you tell us about the Freemasons? I can, um, and I will. I got to I gotta do them as much justice as you have done for the Knights Templar, so I'm going to do my best. Um, but with that in mind, I just want to give a little disclaimer here that Emily and I are not purporting to be experts on the Freemasons and this this whole society. Especially because this is a society that is very much living and breathing today. Mm -hmm. So we don't want to pretend like we know everything about it. Actually, it's quite impossible for us to know everything about it, as there are many secrets associated with it. But what we are hoping to do today is answer some questions that National Treasure viewers might have about the Freemasons after watching the movie. And so some of that will include a little bit about their history, what they do, what they believe in, um, but also just taking it back to the movie as much as we can to answer your questions. And of course, if there's any that you still have after this episode, we hope you'll reach out to us on social media and uh, we'll keep the conversation going. So um, what are the Freemasons? So it turns out that if you somehow haven't heard of them before, the Freemasons are one of the most famous quote unquote secret societies in existence today. They were formally established in England in 1717 as a guild for stonemasons, and they've since become a truly international fraternity. And yes, when I say fraternity, I I do mean that quite literally. It is almost every lodge of Freemasons, and we'll define that in a moment, almost all lodges are all male only. Okay. Hmm. So when the Freemasons were founded, this society spread very quickly throughout Europe and then subsequently, of course, to North America. And something that I think is really worth pointing out, Em, is the fact that during the American Revolution, you would find Freemasons fighting on both sides of that war, both for England England and for, well, I wanted to say the United States. States, that wasn't really a thing yet, but for the colonies, right, at that time. Interesting, yeah. right? Oh, and, yeah. And it makes perfect sense. The Freemasons started over in England that you would have some of your British soldiers be Freemasons. But, you know, that still doesn't answer exactly what the Freemasons are. And I am going to use a quote here to help describe them a a little bit. So Freemasonry is, quote, a system of morality veiled in allegory and illustrated by symbols, end quote. That sounds like some Ben Gates nonsense right there. 
doesn't it? So we've got a couple of keywords here, right? So it's it's really about values. We have allegory, so that that alludes to metaphors and storytelling related to those values and the morality. And then finally, symbols, which is literally national treasure to a T, mm -hmm. right? So I, what's funny to me, not funny, but I guess fun, is that most commonly the symbols are derived from the tools, the common tools of stonemasons. So that's why you see um, in, you know, the Freemason logo or symbol, you know, you have a compass, right? So you have mm -hmm. imagery related to those stonemason tools. One interesting thing, Emily, I think, is the fact that one common crux that all Freemasons share is a belief in some higher power, some god. Now, it doesn't define which god or, you know, which religion, mm -hmm. just a higher power, and that is one of their shared values, if you will. Interesting. Now, yeah, so we'll get to some of the structure of the Freemasons in, in just a moment, but a couple of more comparisons to some of what you told us about the Knights Templar. Um, I wanted to share with you this interesting piece that I found on the website of the Grand Lodge of Ohio, which is for Freemasons. And that quote, I'm, all about, I'm like basically turning into you today with these quotes. Well, I love this, guys. Listen, listen to all the quotes. By the end of this podcast, by the end of season two, we're just going to basically be reading you quotes. It's going to be great. <laughs> Get pumped. So from the Grand Lodge of Ohio, we have, quote, the traditions of Freemasonry are founded upon the building of King Solomon's Temple, and its fraternal ceremonies use the working tools of the stonemasons to symbolize moral lessons of brotherly love, relief, and truth. Okay? King Solomon's Temple, you say? Yeah, so it's coming back, right? So it's part of that, um, it's part of this allegory. So they use metaphor, they use allegory in teaching the moral lessons that they believe in. Mm -hmm. And what I think is really interesting here to point out are these, these moral lessons of, again, brotherly love, relief, and truth. Now, in this case, Emily, brotherly love does not refer to Philadelphia, but instead refers to just the, the general concept of caring for one another and one's community. Relief, of course, refers to helping those in distress and helping those who need it. And then finally, truth, which is improving oneself and again, one's community. So these are some of the moral principles that are shared by members of the Freemasons. Now, getting more into the structure like you did, Emily, previously, we do have three degrees, almost levels, if you will, of Freemasons. The first level is the apprentice, the second is fellow craft, and the third is master mason. And so these levels are actually named after the stonemason craft. Now, I should clarify, Emily, that today you do not have to be a stonemason. Further into the structure, we have Freemasons organized into local lodges. Okay, so this sounds a bit like how you were organizing the Knights Templar under, you know, the master of, of the order for the different regions, right? So mm. in this case, for the Freemasons, there are lodges, uh, which are local. Okay. The lodges have meetings to take care of business, 
All right. So things like bills or elections of, you know, members into certain positions, etc. These meetings also are held to initiate new members or promote existing members between these three levels of masonry. Makes sense. And they also host lectures about these moral values that they hold in truth and they're also major contributors to charity so there are different charity functions that certain local lodges um take part in oh wow yeah yeah and and actually some of the figures out there in terms of how much freemasons contribute to monetarily to charity are pretty astounding um, there's actually a link between the freemasons and the shriners hospitals for children so oh, so cool yeah, isn't that interesting? I had no idea. Um, but all in all, uh, the different lodges operate fairly independently of one another. And as I mentioned before, Em, almost all of these lodges are men only. So you and I are on the outs, as is our beloved Abigail Chase. Mm. What a shame. I know, because patriarchy. Just kidding. The patriarchy. <laughs> anyway, when we talk about masonry, it's also important to acknowledge the existence of anti-masonry, which as it sounds, is basically any opposition to Freemasons or masonry. Though this sentiment of anti-masonry is not centralized by any single organization. It's not like there are the Freemasons and the anti-Freemasons. Okay. However, I am bringing this up for a very specific re reason, and that's because some religions and this is including many Christian denominations. Some religions and many Christian denominations denounce masonry very strongly. And one of the most vocal denouncers, is that a word? I don't know. One of the most <laughs> vocal denominations against masonry are the Roman Catholics. Hmm. So I'm going to use this as maybe more support for the fact that the Knights Templar wouldn't have birthed Freemasons because the Knights Templar were buddy-buddy with the Catholic Church. Catholic Church, yeah. Right? We should go so far as to mention that the Catholic Church's first decree against Freemasonry came all the way back in 1738, about 20 years after the Freemasons were formally incorporated in England. Oh, wow. Yeah, so they're not just, you know, tisk tisk. you can't be a Roman Catholic and be a Freemason. It just was not allowed. Okay, good, good to know. I mean, I'm not Catholic and we're not Freemasons, but that's good information for anybody who's looking into it. <laughs> Absolutely. Into either. So... The, you, you'll recall that I did refer to the Freemasons as a secret society, and some people like using this terminology and some don't, but what you can't argue is the fact that some aspects of this organization are secret. They're known only to the members themselves. So, you know, you can go online and read lots of interviews with Freemasons about their you know, fraternity and their friendship with their fellow Freemasons or the charity work that they do or the values that they hold. But there are certain things like their initiation ceremonies or um, other 
secrets related to their society that you're just not going to find out. And they vow to keep those secrets when, when they join this society. Now, interestingly enough, um, religion and politics are not to be discussed in a lodge. And that seems smart. Yeah. I mean, it's like any, you know, civil dinner table conversation, right? Yeah. It seems, it seems like a way of preventing arguments. Yeah. Fair enough. But it is worth clarifying that, Freemasonry itself is not a religion, and it is not a political party, and it's not even indicative of any particular trade or job or profession. All in all, it's a society that wants to teach and share its ideas of morality. So I know, Emily, we have planned for season two a special episode on ethics and morality in National Treasure. Hey, maybe we'll call back to the Freemasons at some point in that episode. Possibly. <laughs> So, so now that we know what, or we have a better idea of what Freemasons are, let's talk more about the society's intersections with our favorite movie, National Treasure. So, as you mentioned, Emily, in the movie's backstory, the Templar treasure is smuggled out of Europe and goes to America. And at some point before this, the Templars took on the name of the Freemasons. Again, this is according to our lovely story writers in for National Treasure. Now, in America, the Freemasons needed to keep the treasure away from the British during the Revolution. And so they hid it, leaving behind the clues that became our lovely movie. Now... Interestingly enough, there are, are some people out there that say this idea of hiding the treasure from the British, that whole point just doesn't check out because the American Freemasons came from the British Freemasons, right? Ah, yeah. But I, here's the thing. I don't know if I fully buy that just because if the whole point was to keep the treasure away from the British so that America would, you know, be free and its own country. I don't think that plot point is necessarily problematic. You could easily have the Masons who are loyal to the British crown and other Masons who are, again, our founding fathers who wanted to see America be its own country. That's my opinion though. Makes sense. Yeah. Furthermore, we also have Ben's grandfather saying that the Freemasons were basically masters of hiding clues and everyday items right under our noses. And with regards to the Masons and the, the Knights Templar, he refers to one of these quote-unquote clues or symbols being the all-seeing eye on the U.S. $1 bill, right? It's the first instance where we see U.S. currency in the film, which, as we discussed before, becomes a recurring theme. And actually, when we talked to our friend Charles Seegers, the writer of National Treasure, he mentioned how that was a conscious decision to be able to hammer home this concept of symbols being all around us in our daily lives and us not mm -hmm. necessarily noticing them. But Aubrey, so, the eye on the pyramid, that's always been something that's really interested me. And it's like one of those symbols that I don't quite know where it came from. Does it have anything to do with the Freemasons? Yeah, and so that's a really good question, in part because if you've ever heard of the Freemasons before and you're not terribly familiar with them, you've probably heard of them with reference to some conspiracy theory. There are lots of, again, Em, you'll probably love this, a lot of conspiracy theories out there that the Freemasons are sort of behind everything, right? Mm -hmm. They're 
in the in the back of major international decisions or this or that or the other thing and people like to point to symbols just like that eye of the pyramid as you know proof of that if you will the, and so the answer to your question is that no the eye in the pyramid is not actually a freemason symbol although people commonly mistake it to be one okay and and the, where this mistake comes from is the fact that the Masons do respect the two components of the symbol, but they use them as separate symbols. Okay, so okay. what we mean by that is, so you have the all-seeing eye, the eye at the top of the pyramid. Get rid of the pyramid for a sec. You've got <laughs> the eye, and that all-seeing eye is found in Masonic teachings to remind the Freemasons that their actions are judged by a supreme being. Oh, that makes sense. Right. Remember, because they all believe in some mm -hmm. higher power. Right. And then, okay, now get rid of the eye, and you have the unfinished pyramid. And recall that the Freemasons originated as stonecutters and stonemasons. So the pyramid represents the great builders of history. Wow. So I can see how it would be so easy for people then to mistake that the two of them together is a symbol of Freemasonry. Exactly. And it's really no surprise that that has launched, gosh, more conspiracy theories than we could count. And we're not going to dedicate too much time to them because, again, they're conspiracy theories. Anyway, moving right along to more of our parallels with the film, and we talked a little bit about this one before, the movie tells us that some of our very famous founding fathers, such as George Washington, Paul Revere, and Ben Franklin, were Freemasons. And, you know, we will reiterate for anyone who did not catch our episode on the founding fathers, but you should check that out. This is true. So these three folks, Washington, Revere, and Franklin, were all Freemasons. Specifically, Ben Franklin was the head of the Freemasons in Pennsylvania, while Paul Revere teamed up with a man named Joseph Warren as the heads of the Freemasons in Massachusetts. Hmm. Now, as we also mentioned already, Charles Carroll of Carrollton, so the last living signer of the Declaration of Independence, who again passes along our movie clue of The Secret Lies with Charlotte, the movie said that he was a Freemason as well, but, you know, as, again, we discussed in our episode on the Founders, Charles Carroll of Carrollton was not a Freemason, and instead, he was a Catholic. So remember, oh. Catholics, Freemasons, they don't cross. <laughs> Aubrey's making the hand motion, just for yeah. those of you who aren't me and can't and physically see her right now. And I don't want to actually make it sound such that people today who are Catholics are not Freemasons. I do not know. I'm just saying historically those two those two groups did not cross. At that at that time period when Charles Carroll was alive, <laughs> it, it would have been highly unlikely. Right, exactly. Um, our, our movie also says that at least nine Freemasons signed the Declaration of Independence, and this is said to be true in real life, so that's cool as well. Mm. And there are tons and tons of other Freemasons that have had important roles in the creation of America. So that includes John Hancock, so the massive signature on our declaration, right? John Sullivan, the Marquis de Lafayette, who we know, I believe, from Hamilton. 
it's really right? hard for me not to burst into his rap right now. You, you're welcome to everyone for not I doing mean, that. Feel free, Emily. The, the, the world is your stage right now. No. Um, so, and, and those are just a few, there are many others and it's not just the founding fathers. There are tons of famous faces throughout history that have been Freemasons. And just a couple of examples across the spectrum, we have Winston Churchill, uh, Mozart, hey. <laughs> Davy Crockett, Franklin Roosevelt, Harry Houdini. And both Henry and Gerald Ford. And those are literally just the the amount that I can count on like one hand. There are so, so many more. And those members over time have included politicians, artists, scientists, and just about every profession that you can think of. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So we talked a lot about the beginning of national treasure today, Emily. And so I do want to point out that we have some references to the Freemasons at the very end of the film too. Specifically, uh, I will draw your attention to one of our lovely destruction of history scenes that drive you and I crazy when we are inside of Trinity church and we learn that we must find Parkington lane and Parkington lane happens to be a tomb in Trinity Church, and Ben Gates finds it and is super thrilled to tell everyone all about Parkington Lane and tells everyone that Mr. Lane was a 33rd degree master mason, and boom, we have one of our uh, henchmen destroying the tomb of of Mr. Lane here. Um, It hurts us every time, I'll tell you all that. But um, interestingly enough, you might recall, we, we've talked about this term Master Mason today already, right? A Master Mason is the highest degree of masonry. And I would say it seems pretty appropriate that a Master Mason's tomb then would lead the way to the treasure. And if you're wondering what a 33rd degree Master Mason is, I've learned that uh, apparently the 33rd degree is an honorary degree for people who've made major contributions to society or to Freemasonry generally. So very poetic. And speaking of poetic, our, our final reference to the Freemasons in this film, of course, is the worst character in the film, Agent Sadusky, who was revealed to have been a Freemason the whole time, so he should have just understood Ben's passion to find the treasure and been supportive, but no. Anyway. He should have been able to solve the clues. True. That's a great point. Meanwhile, he's just over here running the FBI when there's a treasure to be found in New York City. Um, but he's got to go to prison, Ben. And it's probably Agent Sadusky. <laughs> Verdict is in. Anyway, um, I thought uh, we ha- you, you introduced a thought experiment in, in your little section of today's episode. I have a couple of fun facts followed by my own thought experiment. So you want to indulge me here? Okay, cool. Yeah. Here are my fun facts. You ready? Jim Koof, the co-writer of the National Treasure screenplay, had a grandfather who was a Freemason. And Koof himself has given interviews and said, specifically in a Nat Geo interview, that when George Washington struggled to raise his army for the American Revolution, he called upon some of his fellow Masons because he knew that he could count on them. Hmm. And so that is something that Hamilton doesn't teach you that you're only going to learn here on the National Treasure Hunt podcast. It is true. 
the the other fun fact that I have, um, and this I don't know if you want to create your own conspiracy theory here. Um, I learned that the in the U.S. there is a Freemason-sponsored youth organization for boys aged 12 to 21, and it's called Demole. And my my apologies if I pronounce that wrong, but we're going to call it here Demole. And it turns out that Walt Disney was a member of Demole. And Ooh. what company produced National Treasure? Disney. <laughs> We are creating our own conspiracy theories right here for fun. But I gotta, I'm, I'll, I'll kill it a little bit by saying that while Walt Disney was a member of Demole, he was not a Freemason. Rough. I know, right? Okay, so now it's time for my thought experiment. Let's and I, I have a question for you because this has never really been clear to me. And, and putting this episode together really made me think about it. The fact that it's never been clear to me whether Ben and his father or his grandfather are Freemasons. Hmm. Have you thought about that before? I guess I always assumed that they weren't. That they were not? Yeah. Because otherwise I felt like they would have like found the treasure more quickly. <laughs> I mean, but that's also fair. then there were like in the in the frame of the movie that mean like there were also plenty of freemasons that existed that weren't out there finding the treasure because it was still there so my logic really falls apart very quickly but but i so i but i can see your perspective there i could also see the other side where apparently all of this about the treasure according to the movie is quote unquote freemason teachings and ben's family knows all about the treasure ergo how would they have learned it? You know what I'm saying? And so with this in mind, and I, I also, I should take another step back and say, when Ben's a child, he thinks that his family are knights, right? So it almost alludes to them being like the Knights Templar, but not necessarily the Freemasons. So I wanted to, to think really critically about this to see if there was a clear answer that we just might have missed. Mm -hmm. And here are the points that, that I've, pulled out here the first um again we have another reference to freemason teachings at the end of the film um when ben and his father patrick are sort of playing off each other when they need to lose ian at the you know the bottom of trinity church they need to change the status quo in their favor and they need to he needs to get lost basically and patrick is making up this fake clue and says the light of truth it's part of freemason teachings you know would he only know about the freemason teachings if he was a mason himself hmm. i'm not sure based on what we've learned about the freemasons today yeah you might have some ideas about their code of conduct of morality but i don't think you would know much about their teachings i think that would be something that would be a lot more secret for this yeah. society um another thing that i i want to point out and this is foreshadowing a little bit because it's going to be related to national treasure 2 but the opening scene of National Treasure 2 Book of Secrets is filmed at the George Washington Masonic National Memorial in Alexandria, Virginia. And this isn't explicitly stated in the movie. So maybe it's not maybe it's not necessarily 
a Mason's sponsored meeting. But <laughs> let's assume for a second that it was. Okay, let's assume mm-hmm. for a second that Nick Cage wasn't just being filmed there, but that Ben Gates' speech was actually supposed to be taking place there. Okay. All right. And we learned today that one thing that happens at a lot of lodge meetings is lectures oh. related to Masonic history or their teachings or their morality, etc. Okay, if Ben and his father are there, you know, maybe they're just there because they were invited to give to give a lecture, or maybe they're there because they're Masons. I don't know. And finally, the last point, I'm 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 really jumping around today, but I was really taking this 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 deep dive look seriously, this thought experiment seriously. If you go back to where we started today, at the beginning of the film when Little Ben's grandfather is, quote-unquote, swearing Ben in as a knight in the attic. We talked about this a little earlier. He asks him to take on the duty of the Knights Templar, the Freemasons, and the Family Gates. Okay? He -hmm. names those three entities separately. So, I wonder, did, did he have to break out the Family Gates portion because he and the family are not Masons? Or just because he, as a Mason, doesn't have the right to singularly anoint someone else as a Mason. Hmm. So this is a really long-winded way of me saying that I don't think there's a clear answer here. Yeah. And it's it's really open to interpretation. If I had to make my own prediction, I, I would guess that they are not Masons, or at least Ben is not. And the reason I would guess that is because the Freemasons are such a huge part of the film plot-wise that if Ben Gates was a Mason, I feel like that would be screamed into our faces. That's true. Yeah, I can definitely see that. Yeah. But but again, it's just my own, my own two cents based on, you know, thinking about this a lot. Yeah. So I wanted to wrap up this section with... Just a quick question about, you know, this movie, National Treasure, really uses the Freemasons as a major plot point. And again, Knights Templar doesn't still exist, but the Freemasons do. Mm -hmm. And so I asked myself, I wonder how the Freemasons feel about the film. And my impression, and again, this is not me trying to project, if I had to guess without any context i mean i think the film paints the freemasons in a pretty good and almost heroic light in in the plot and from what i could find online it seems that in general freemasons don't mind the movie and a lot of them find it fun and entertaining and a cool way to talk about you know this this fraternity that they're a part of i'm sure not everyone feels that way but that's a lot of what i found online um it's not surprising that there are some mason websites out there teasing out the fact versus fiction from this very movie but if if you are a freemason we would absolutely invite you to tell us your thoughts on the film do you do you like the way it portrays the masons do you find it problematic in any way we'd be really curious to hear your thoughts for sure i that would be absolutely fascinating to be able to you know get a deeper look 
into that because as Aubrey was saying, you know, we do the research here and we try and do it as well as we can. But, you know, there's always stuff that, you know, we might miss. And especially when it comes to something that is, you know, as important to people as uh, Freemasonry is, we really want to make sure that we're kind of opening up the channels of communication to really hear from um, all all sides here and, you know, really get everybody's input on what they think is going on and what they think about the movie and how they're portrayed in the movie. Absolutely. So if you have thoughts on that or anything else that we've discussed today, please reach out to us on social media. You will find us on Twitter and Instagram at NT Hunt Podcast because we want to keep the conversation going since we're pretty much at the end of today's episode. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, So we hope you enjoyed learning with us today on this deep dive into both the Knights Templar and the Freemasons, different societies that I know Emily and I had very little familiarity with prior to this episode. So we hope you enjoyed learning along with us. And we hope you like this style of deep dives because we think it's really fun to take real facets of these films and learn more about what they are and their significance in real life. So we intend to do more of these in the future. So hope you like it. (laughs) But in any case, um, we want to tease that our next episode coming everyone's way is the 10th and final episode of season one of National Treasure Hunt. Where has the time gone? So in that episode coming two Wednesdays from now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, etc., is going to be one more deep dive look this time into historical document preservation. So we gave you a little taste of why Ben, Riley, and Abigail majorly tampering with the Declaration of Independence would have been a horrific idea in our episode on science and national treasure, but we are going to go ham on this subject and learn more about how historical documents are preserved and protected, because quite frankly, if y'all have seen the Declaration of Independence, it could use some preserving and protecting. Oh, for sure, for sure. (laughs) It's seen better days, that's for certain. That is my two cents on the topic, and you're going to hear a lot more of that in our next episode. So we hope you will join us next time. But until then, I'm Aubrey. And I'm Emily. And thank you so much for joining us on our National Treasure Hunt. (laughs) 